Hello and welcome to a lock-in at the Crate and Crowbar. This week we're discussing Mad God, an absolutely deranged stop-motion film <laughs> about uh, a descent into hell from the legendary animator Phil Tippett. And it is every bit as lurid, profane and brutal as a trip to hell could promise to be. I'm Marsh Davis, a mere demonic underling made out of lint and verrucas, of course... <laughs> I'm here only to serve the unknowable whims of the terrifying beak-faced televisual alchemist known to some as Jamie Britton. Hello. Um, that's the last <laughs> time you'll hear my voice. I'll be communicating entirely in sort of uh, gibbers and uh, screams and howls. And, and sometimes they'll just be the sound of my uh, breath <laughs> as I ogle something from afar. <laughs> yes. Let's, let's shape those baby noises and monkey howls into uh, some sort of critical commentary. Uh, so, mad God, uh, what, what did we expect? What did you expect picking up this film? Yeah, so I'd, um, uh, again, our Discord had mentioned that it had come out. And I, I knew of it, actually, because I'd seen, I think, on Facebook a few years ago, you know, when it's like, you know, they have that sort of feed that will, um, you know, occasionally stop showing you, you know, horrible <laughs> right-wing news and occasionally just show you something that you're genuinely <laughs> interested in. And uh, and it showed like a kind of work-in-progress thing for this for this movie, and I think that was about five or six years ago. And it said there that he'd be making it for, you know, 25-odd years at that point. Um, and it just looked it just looked incredible. And then I completely forgot about it until someone mentioned it in the Crate and Crowbar Discord um, a couple of days ago, and it had been released on uh, Shudder. Uh, the sort of horror movie streaming platform. Um, and so, yeah, I just immediately thought, oh, I've been, I remember thinking, oh, wow, that looks amazing. So I I, uh, I mentioned it to you guys and, and you wanted to get involved as well. Oh, yes. Couldn't be more in my in my wheelhouse, this, <laughs> really. <laughs> uh, I'm a, a huge fan of the work of Hieronymus Bosch and uh, the various Bruegels, um, all of which inspire these sorts of... Uh, visions of of hell with an eye to kind of grotesque detail and uh, the trailer for this immediately sold me on on at least that did you get what you expected out of it because i think i got a little bit something different than i was expecting yes <laughs> it's such an intense movie that it's hard to like quite quantify what i feel i did get out of it i mean i think i went in expecting something a little bit more oddball and a little bit more in line with I don't know I think I was sort of expecting a more like adult version of one of those Jim Henson movies from the 80s like Labyrinth or The Dark Crystal or, or something like that uh, I think I was expecting a more whimsical um, attitude mm. um, and this film is in no way whimsical <laughs> it's deadly no. deadly serious and deadly bleak and it has a black heart and a sense of nihilism to it i guess that came as a as a shock yes likewise i was expecting a little more um it, it is a humorous film in places which we should talk about uh later cuz uh whether that is tonally part, <laughs> part and parcel of what else goes on um but uh, I, yes, I wasn't. I was very um, shocked by the the level of nihilism to which it descends. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it was it was quite a, a bleak, bleak viewing. Um, but there are moments of lightness in it. It's very short, um, but mm. it feels longer. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. And you know, I was watching it just on my laptop screen. You know, the worst way to view a movie, um, and it was still 
at points unbearably intense and upsetting. Um, you know, that sort of almost that feeling of I want to get off, mum. <laughs> you know, it's that kind of <laughs> the dodgems are going too fast for little old me. You know, it's almost that sort of feeling to it. Well, before we get into like, I have prepared like a pre-spoiler plot synopsis for people who are interested. I'm very looking forward but, to that. <laughs> but, uh, it's going to be quite vague. Um, maybe we should, before we get into exactly what the film is, maybe we should talk a bit about maybe the, what it is in terms of the genre. Like it's stop frame animation. Uh, is that a, a thing that you're familiar with? Yeah, I, 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 I do love it. And I think whenever it's been employed well in the kind of entire history of cinema, it's all, you know, I guess the kind of, there's a self-selecting group of movies which date back all the way to kind of, you know, the 1920s and beyond, which have sort of stood the test of time because of their stop motion animation. Um, You know, there's an amazing quote I came across, which I'd never heard before from Roger Ebert, who when sort of comparing stop frame animation to CGI, he said, um, uh, you know, CGI uh, looks real but feels fake and stop frame animation looks fake but feels real, which I thought was mm. a, a, a absolutely bang on description of it. So through the whole history of, of kind of, you know, fantasy and sci-fi movies in particular and stuff like King Kong and then all the, the Harryhausen movies, Jason and the Argonauts, uh, Clash of the Titans um, and all the kind of stuff that comes along with that, um, particularly into the 70s and 80s. Um, and then the kind of merging of that stuff into sort of special effects, um, you know, with the sort of James Cameron movies and Steven Spielberg movies and all that kind of stuff. It's just an art form which just, I think, because the demands of it are so high that it has a kind of self-selecting aspect to it where the stuff that you do see tends to just be really high quality and really well thought out and, and executed up. And so even stuff like, um, you know, the Wallace and Gromit movies, I mean, everyone loves those, mm. of course, but like the sheer expertise that is clearly on display in there um, is just, you know, it never stops being remarkable to me. Yeah, there's no room for fucking about <laughs> with uh, stop motion because it takes such a long time to execute anything that there is a high level of intentionality behind everything that you see. Um I grew up with uh, Ardman animation and uh, the Cosgrove Hall animations. I watched the, their their um, claymation Wind in the Willows more times than I can count. Um and I think I think my earliest career aspiration was to be an animator, weirdly. Did you make um, little stop motion movies on your on your camcorder at home? No, we didn't have anything of that kind. But I did uh, make a lot of like plasticine and, and play doh figurines and things like that. that I imagined you know could be the kinds of things that you would animate. But I I think I, I think I did do like one sort of art school course in animation where where that was actually facilitated. But we just didn't have the the, the technology to to make my childish dreams come true. But then I did actually end up doing. Um, Work experience at Shepparton Studios in uh, on a on a scene of um, physical special effects. So they were animating uh, the a sort of TARDIS-like thing um, for the Blackadder Christmas special, which was terrible in the end. But they, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I have I, I kind of have an innate love and history with um, stop motion animation. Yeah, I used, um, I used to make little movies with my uh, our family camcorder, um, but of course. <laughs> You know, there was no real way of editing in those days. So what I would do is I'd just turn the camera on and off really fast and then move the 
figurine that I was trying to make a little animation out of and then turned the camera on and off really fast. Um, and it didn't work at all uh, because, you know, the cameras aren't, aren't you know, they, they're just not, uh, well, they weren't well made enough for that. My cousins who are a lot much younger than me and my actually my uh, little sisters who are much younger than me, uh, it's much easier now. There's apps and stuff that can make mm. uh, uh, stop frame animation uh, much easier. So I think that's nice because it was so frustrating to kind of know the principle of it because the principle of it is so simple. <laughs> the principle of it and the idea behind it is so fundamental and you can do it with the corner of a notebook, you know, but it's so hard to um, execute on. I'm always put in mind of that great fast show sketch where the guy is <laughs> just you know <laughs> yeah. doing a doing a kind of impression of all documentaries about stop frame animation where he's just going and he just moves my tiny bit, he just moves my tiny bit. <laughs> you know? <Yeah. laughs> and I think I think it's Paul White has absolute disgusted face at what's going on before him. <laughs> So yeah, I just I, it's just something. It's just a field which is always really good. And actually, the first time I came on Crate and Crowbar, me and Tom were talking about that show, um, The Shivering Truth, which is also mm. stop frame animation and and kind of pretty close to what we're talking about here. Actually, it's similarly a kind of body horror uh, take on uh, stop frame animation, which seems to be you know quite a draw <laughs> for lots of people who get involved in this stuff. Right, yeah. There's the uh, the famed um, Pingu slash Thing uh, crossover. Have you seen that? No. <laughs> it's, it's it's the plot of Thing, but animated with the characters from Pingu. It's... Oh my god, I've got to see that. <laughs> I, I I think it set the internet alight like ten years ago or something like that. But it was it's, it's very good. But yeah, very uh, very much. It, it seems like a, a medium that gives gives itself well to. Um, evisceration. <laughs> yeah, for some well, reason. Oh, and Pingu is just a kind of a, is his own kind of body horror show, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Completely deranged. Very brilliant. <laughs> Were you familiar with um, Phil Tippett as a name? I mean, obviously, we've all seen his work in Star Wars and RoboCop and Tremors and Jurassic Park and Starship Troopers, amongst other things. But did you know that there was his hand particularly behind that work? No, actually, I I, I think. You know, I think I, it's one of those weird things when you see, oh, he did all, you know, it's like when you learn about Ben Burt, the, the sound designer, you know, and you realize, oh, he did the sound design in all the movies where I've ever noticed the sound design, you know. <laughs> and similarly with, with Phil Tippett, it turns out that whenever you've watched a Hollywood movie, basically since the 70s, and you see some stop motion animation, it's him. Um, he's a real, like, master at it. And, you know, um, it's, he's an interesting guy. He's kind of got that kind of, apocalyptic vibe to him now like apocalyptic ex-hippie kind of uh, mm. thing going on um uh you know he's the guy who said to steven spielberg you know when he said steven spielberg said to him you're out of a job when they saw the cgi and he said don't you mean extinct which is the line that goes into the movie but he was very he, he was so skilled with sort of animation and movement and things like that uh, that he managed to kind of keep a career not necessarily working in stop frame animation specifically, but was able to kind of, despite, he says, you know, not having any understanding or knowledge how computers work or anything like that, you know, he was always just a kind of, um, which is why he has the dinosaur supervisor credit on Jurassic Park, which people are fond of screen capping and saying, uh, you had one job, Phil, <laughs> which is very good. Um, <laughs> which is the, <laughs> the first time I think I ever saw his name written out loud is people people, people memeing the uh, credit in Jurassic Park. Um, <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, and, and then, like, just looking back over some of his work, I mean, he did the... Um, uh, the ATAT um, fight on Endor in uh, is it Endor? No, it's not Endor. It's um, Hoth. 
um, mm. which for my money is probably the best action sequence in those original movies. Certainly the 80, 80s are kind of things of wonder, I think. Placing stop motion animation within otherwise live action work. There's a certain affection that I have for it. Yes. It's, it's funny, isn't it? Because it was the, the, the combination of, 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 you know, CG and stop motion is the sort of special source that makes Jurassic Park still stand up. Mm. you know so well even today really um the only the only bits in Jurassic Park which look dated are, are when they're relying fully on CGI like the um the Gallimimus stampede or the Brachiosaurus at the beginning but everything else is just this kind of brilliant mix of mostly um you know uh, robots and stop frame animation with the occasional bit of CG to kind of kick it up the arse which is uh, uh you know very clever um and yeah, just like kind of looking through one of the main credits that I uh, was really surprised by is Starship Troopers, which I adore Starship Troopers. I think it might be one of my favorite movies ever made. And um, the he designed the insects in it and basically, by all accounts, co-directed all the action sequences in that. And the aliens in Starship Troopers, I just think are so amazing <laughs> and, and such like fantastic uh, monsters uh, generally, and the way that those those sequences sequences and the the battles in that movie are choreographed and executed is just amazing and and just really awe inspiring. I think so. Hmm. Yeah, I think that was one um, one I uh, uh, really uh, really jumped out at me, um, as well as Tremors Two, which Tremors Two is a very silly movie, as is Tremors One. But Tremors Two's got the like the 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 graboid pod pods that can walk around and are quite cute. <laughs> and he designed those. And they're a little a little miracle of um, animation as well um, in a deeply silly movie. So yeah, it was uh, <laughs> it was really fun to go back and, and have a look at all these all these brilliant oh, oh and one other, which is the movie Virus, which is another deeply, deeply, deeply stupid uh, movie about um, you know, a bunch of people going on a boat for some reason, and then there's a storm, and then there's an AI. But it's got a bit at the end where, spoiler alert, Donald Sutherland uh, gets put in a big, like, mecha robot suit and is, like, stomping around chasing Jamie Lee Curtis, and it's completely insane. <laughs> what the fuck is this film? Are you sure you didn't imagine this? Like, yeah. <laughs> no, no recollection of this at all. Yeah, Virus, 1998 or 9's Virus. Um, which has the plot, which is the same plot as several movies, <laughs> and also one of those um, dark pictures anthology video games as well, where right. it's like a bunch of nerdy well kids end up on a derelict boat, which has got like monsters and robots on it and stuff, and then there's a storm, and they have to survive the storm with the with the gribblies. Um, anyway, I digress. But that film is is stupid <laughs> and in a good way. <laughs> yes. So, uh, Mad God, then, I mean, he spent uh, how many years making it? It's, it says shot between 1987 and 2020 uh, <laughs> uh, in the credits, which gives you a sense of the scale of the project and how much wear and tear it did to the man who, who made it. He says he had, uh, yeah, he was obsessed for a period of time doing absolutely nothing other than thinking about and making this film. He hated working on it towards the end he had a psychotic snap while working on it and had to be sent to the psych ward um, by his own account and you can really see why <laughs> <laughs> um he describes the the kind of uh, conception of this film as uh, almost 
like uh, automatic writing. Like he, uh, he felt like he was a, a conduit for some other vision and he was just putting it together. It is nightmarish to behold. It is a descent into hell. The extent to which that is literal or metaphoric, it's not quite clear. Uh, we follow a character wearing uh, a gas mask and a helmet swaddled in this thick trench coat as they plunge into successive abyssal realms populated by these just monstrous, demented and corrupted souls who are variously torturing, enslaving, killing, devouring and copiously shitting on one another. (laughs) Um, And he's following this deteriorating map to some as yet unknown goal. The manner by which this is depicted I think is as grotesque as I think the human imagination has been able to conjure. <laughs> yep. Um, and along the way, we pass these just industrial scale horrors as perpetual warfare, vivisection, brutality, and just a huge amount of poo. There's, <laughs> there's sometimes almost slapstick. It's always stomach churning. Uh, and where the plot ultimately goes is possibly less important than the saturation of grotesquerie with which it is presented. And what it means is definitely open to interpretation. I'm interested to get into that with you. Um, And that vagueness is for both better and worse. However, I do not think that you could class this film as optimistic about the human condition or really uh, reality in general. Um, So there you go. That's my pre-spoiler plot synopsis. Uh, It's obviously influenced by, as I said, the paintings of Bosch and Bruegel. I mean, it's it's hard to say what exactly are influences because the the duration with which this film was made is so long. Um, but I, I'd probably throw Tarkovsky in there. The film Hard to Be a God, maybe. Although you know, that came out afterwards. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, maybe Come and See or, or other other genuinely horrific war movies that present the uh, conduct of war as being akin to a descent into hell for sure. I wondered about like um, um, Bill Plimpton animations as well. I don't know who that is. You probably know his work to um, to see it. It's kind of it's kind of you know there's often sort of weird figurines kissing each other and then their heads become uh, sort of uh, in, engorged and, and merged with each other. Um, mm. And and it reminded me a bit of that as well. There's a, a lot of dollies and toys being repurposed in this uh, in a way which made me think of uh, Marwan Cole. I don't know if you've seen that. No. Um, again, which is it's an interesting film to compare it to because obviously Marlon Call was probably completely composed and published in the duration with which this film was being made. So it can't be an influence, but it is a sort of parallel obsession in that Marvin Call is uh, um, a documentary about um, a man um, who is obsessed with recreating large scale world war one style conflict with uh dolls and he has a huge um collection of dolls and toys with which he uh creates the horrible channel pit of war um wow that sounds awesome <laughs> yeah it's it's really interesting very i found it very moving but um and there's also that um uh sort of surrealist stop frame animator from is it sweden i don't know if i can pronounce his name jans van Meeker or something like that uh, who did the film? <laughs> who did the film Little Otic and uh, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland? Oh, or it's that guy? Yeah, Alice. Yeah, yeah, Alice. Yeah, mm. uh, who I think actually Phil Tippett is one of the people I saw him mention as a as a direct influence on him. Um, and you can see why the kind of grotesquery of of 
of imitation in 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 sort of puppet forms and model forms being you know a kind of obsession for him as well well should we should we climb into our soon to be shit coated diving bell and plunge past the the spoiler threshold into the actual text of the film itself let's do it the film opens with just this absolutely demented text screed uh, the voice of the mad god itself perhaps pledging to destroy everything uh, you hold dear it says I will lay your cities in ruin and make your sanctuaries desolate and I will not savor your pleasing odors. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't think there's much in the way of pleasing odors in this film. But then, of course, the twist is that this is actually actually a biblical quote yep. uh, from Leviticus because, you know, the text comes up and you think, well, this film's already batshit. <laughs> and then you realize, oh, it's it's in the Bible. Okay. And I think that sets us up. I don't know whether you agree with this. I'm not sure that there was actually that much connect between that text and the rest of the film, other than the fact that it is uh, kind of uh, deranged. Yes, I, I, I thought it sort of, it, it suggested the attitude <laughs> the film was going to take towards existence, but nothing more specific than that, really. Pretty soon after that, we are introduced to the uh, the sort of World War One era trench coat wearing character um he's referred to in the cast as the assassin but we aren't given any kind of clue as to his name or purpose when we watch it and i think that's kind of important because there is a sort of point at which your understanding of who he is and what their objective is um i keep on gendering him that's that's perhaps a mistake as we'll come to later but um climbs into a diving bell past a bunch of uh, flak cannons trying to blow him out of the sky. It descends and descends and descends. But I think it's key that, like, they never really reach a bottom. Like, hell just keeps on going and going and going uh, until the entire thing starts over again. Do you do you have any opinions on the meaning of the crumbling map? I mean, in fact, do you have an opinion on to what extent this film has symbolic meaning or to what extent it is just... Uh, a sensory experience yeah i i think it is mostly a sensory experience i think it when it works when it's doing its job best it's when it's kind of assaulting you with um image and sound and you know kind of quote unquote meaning you know these things got flying at you and you have to sort of do your best to sort of keep yourself grounded uh, amidst all this sort of maelstrom of um, horror, I mean, it's not so much a movie that has a dream logic to it. To it, although you could make that argument, I guess. Um, but for me, it's it's it it works as a kind of. Um, I feel like the movie thinks that to give something a sense of dream logic would to be to give you a way out of it. <laughs> like, if there's some logic to this world, then that means it's somehow solvable. Um, or somehow escapable. And what I kind of l- loved slash barely tolerated while I was watching it is the <laughs> sense that that's just not the case. That anything that's going to be like, even in a sort of poetic sense of rise and fall, um, of, you know, struggle and triumph and all that kind of stuff, it just kind of keeps being taken away from you the moment you see it. So I think for me, that's that's why the movie doesn't need to make sense so much, um, or rather I don't want it to make sense so much, because I'm enjoying the kind of um, force of it 
um, like standing in a in a blast tunnel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't think it's wise to apply a lot of the kind of no- normal storytelling discussion to this. Like, uh, you, the person you believe to be the protagonist is not really the protagonist at all. Maybe not even an antagonist. And <laughs> I think it's a mistake also to treat a lot of its imagery as directly metaphorical. It would be very easy to look at some of the scenes of like. Uh, <laughs> mass scale workplace accidents and be like mm, what does this say about industrial society but I, I i don't think it's necessary i think it's just it's 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 sufficient that it is horrible <laughs> yes um, i think one of the interesting things it does and one of the things that i think seems a little bit um less revolutionary now than if he'd like made the movie when he first started if he would made it in a year in the in the late 80s but like how your sense of space is confounded in this and how there's sort of mm. boxes within boxes within boxes you know which start you again back at the beginning and how you can sort of open a panel in the floor and end up in a completely you know uh, completely different space it doesn't feel continuous at all and i think you know there's been quite a lot of movies in the last you know 15 or so years in particular which have like played with that i'm going to talk about christopher nolan i'm not going to slag him off this time but like you oh, know go on, go on. <laughs> well i actually think he does a fairly good job of the puzzle box thing in in inception and all that kind of stuff um and also like even the doctor strange and, and things like that so i think that that has less of an impact impact to us now but um i think it's still really interesting that like he really tries to confound our sense of order um, and how things follow from each other. Um, uh, except they do they do just about follow. You know, it's it's not a kind of complete jarring tone shift when he opens one of those trapdoors and jumps down. But it's just enough to make you feel deeply uneasy about what you're going to see down there. And it's never mm. good. Um, there's never anything nice down there. <laughs> no, there really isn't. I think the crumbling map. I mean, it's it, it serves just to project a, a sense of disgust and anxiety onto the whole operation. There's something horrible about trying to find your way, and the very thing that is going to help you find your way falling apart in your hands. Obviously, that's that's just a, a, a horrific state to be in. But also, the map itself is this sort of nasty, fleshy palimpsest. Uh, is disgusting to behold, and the characters. Uh, you know, occasionally kind of the f- camera focuses on the character tracing his finger along this largely unintelligible um, map. It's uh, I, All of it just serves to kind of underscore a sensation of disorientation and uh, not only disorientation, but an, uh, a profound inability to be oriented, uh, w- which is alarming, I think. Well, it's um, like it's sort itself. of saying it's saying to you like the things you carry with you in life that you think are the things that guide you and the things that you can rely on are just as decayed and broken and and, and fallible as the world you're trying to navigate through you know mm. you have you have no, nothing to lean on and nothing to refer to ultimately because everything's made of the same stuff and that stuff is shit <laughs> you know it's kind of <laughs> I think one of the uh, one of the sort of vignettes of this film uh, that stick stuck is going to stick with me the most visually is a scene very nearly near the beginning where uh, this trench coat character, the assassin, opens a door to a room and just scans this <laughs> this horrendous scene. There's a monkey on a vivisection table, kind of um, calling plaintively towards the character as though he wishes to be released. There's some kind of salamander in a tank. And then there's a really horny do- doll uh, masturbating in the corner. 
And the character just sort of <laughs> backs away, closes the door yeah. <laughs> and moves on. Um, and it, that sort of really sets <laughs> your expectations for what's going on. The character is not here to save people, for one thing, that's underscored by the scene, but also just the level of suffering to which um, they are required to be indifferent to is is, uh, is established here. I also think the monkey noises are important because, uh, as you said before, there's just um, there's no real speech in this at all. There is um, a lot of screeching, a lot of monkey screeching, um, baby babbling, what do you think about the sound design in general and also the choices specifically to to reduce speech to to animal gibberish or baby gibberish? Well, I mean, I think <laughs> I mean it's 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 not something we like to talk about as human beings, isn't it? But we are monkeys. <laughs> We're moderately successful monkeys and even that's up for debate at this point. Um and I think, you know, that kind of division in us between our animal sides and our and our human sides i you know one of those things this this movie does i think is really go out of its way to mash those ideas into uh, oblivion you know the the only kind of sympathetic emotions we see in this movie are uh those experienced by the you know the tortured well we feel sorry for them for the tortured animals of this world um and the people who are torturing them are often, you know, just about as animalistic as you know, often they're monsters or they're people with kind of monsters that are half their bodies and, and, and stuff like that. So I think I think it's sort of trying to, again, obliterate your sense of separation from, you know, the things that frighten you. I think generally the sound design in this movie is incredible, absolutely incredible. And I think it does a huge amount of work. Um, for the movie, uh, you know, I think it, the person doing it is is a similarly similarly Phil Tippett type guy, um, you know, some sort of genius. And I think the sound design is just out of this world good. If it wasn't for um, the third series of um, Twin Peaks, I think um, just kind of completely moving the goalposts on on how much storytelling you can do with with sound design. I think this this comes a close close second to that. Yeah, it's 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 yeah, it's always alarming. <laughs> I'll never but forget the, the sound of the clock ticking, which is that kind of, spr- yeah, that yeah. sort of a doing, but the most frightening doing you've ever heard in your life. Yeah. Talking of the tortured, we quickly move on to uh, a descent past these gigantic soldiers with what seem to be bollock heads being electrocuted continuously until they defecate. Uh, their ship pouring into the slathering mouth of an android head with wild rolling eyes, and I feel like <laughs> a lot of this imagery is like daring you to be to to uh, pin a metaphor on it. But I think that would always be crude and uh, a mistake. I think again, like I said before, it's just enough to say that this is really bad. Yeah. It's a bad place to be. And, and funnily enough, this moment freaked me out a lot. Because a few years ago, I tried to sort of work on a project which was a similar kind of hell type vision. And I came up with something very similar. I had these like, uh, you know, this image, a very similar image in my head to this. Enough to make me think like, ooh, like, is this a common dream people have? Is this a common nightmare? You know, um, it made me feel weirdly connected to it, which is which is strange. 
Um, <laughs> you know, like that way everyone always, you know, everyone has dreams about, um, you know, driving cars and they've forgotten how to drive and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> I wondered if this particular image was a sort of shared Jungian bit of uh, a bit of detritus. Um, yeah, but yeah I've, not, I've not had this one. <laughs> not had this one, not had the bollock, bollock electrocuting uh, ship south dream. No, well, this time. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm surprised I didn't dream about it after watching the film, to be honest. I did have a quite a disturbed night's sleep. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I think there's I, one of the reasons that it kind of lends itself so easily to uh, slightly lazy sort of metaphor, I suppose, is that there's, there's an awful lot of, of sort of work slash labor being done in the film that is not being uh, <laughs> rewarded, let's say. Um, from this this uh this android poo drinker uh, i believe anyway it's hard to exactly get the continuity here but i believe that that machine produces these um endless hordes of poo slash lint workers uh who uh wander through the world doing menial tasks only to be crushed and smashed in unending industrial accidents um <laughs> The commandant of this realm seems to be this floating conglomeration of television sets uh, depicting a mouth and charred lips um, with dirty teeth that speaks in baby babble. But during that scene, uh, or that, that sequence of scenes, a lot of the kind of ways in which the violence done to those workers is set up is quite slapstick. Like you're always waiting for what's going to happen next. There's even a part where these workers erect uh, this huge obelisk and it pans right past all these these line of other obelisks and a worker on the other side of this line sort of just takes a rest for a moment leans against an obelisk sets off a, a domino chain which ultimately crushes those initial workers obviously that's meant to be like a like funny but did you find it funny <laughs> is it is it right that it's funny amid all this other horror yeah i don't know i don't think i I don't think I did find it funny. I think this scene in particular is the is the moment where the movie really kind of it really kicks into a new gear because it goes on for a long time this scene or at least it feels like it. You know, the camera moves away from our quote unquote protagonist and we just take in this horrifying nightmare for quite a while and sort of seeing these um uh you know shit and lint men um, you know, dying senselessly. You know, I bet he hasn't played um, played Ed's game inside, but there's actually quite a lot of that here. I think he's drawing from a sort of similar, again, a, a similar a sort of Jungian collective unconscious. Well, there's even moments where, which almost seem to be directly quoting it, where they're all sort of walking in in lines. Um, and again, similarly to that, that kind of the deaths are done with no. Um, sense of uh, you know weight at all. They're just these like senseless death after senseless death. Um, yeah, I, I I found this bit really alarming. I mean, it, it's I guess what the thing is is it sort of starts off maybe a bit funny and maybe a bit like you know sort of squishing ants, but then yeah. it just keeps going and going and going and it wears you down. You know. Yeah, yeah, the, the, and I think the almost the slapstick nature of some of those deaths actually ultimately help make the thing more serious and horrific by the end of it because there is just a uh, a grating insolence to the humor by the end of this sequence of of, of just absolute carnage um 
that you f- begin to find it an ad- additional layer of disgust. Whereas the like humor at the beginning is almost a distancing technique. By the end of it, it feels in such kind of horrible taste that it actually adds to the horror <laughs> in yes. a weird way. Yeah. Um, and I think that that kind of like comes to a head uh, when um, big bollock pooping tumor is introduced, um, <laughs> who is seemingly some sort of creature that keeps these workers in line because it murders them whenever they do anything uh that isn't labor in fact it just seems to have murdered them mindlessly anyway but at one point the um the trench coat wearing character finds the 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 hatch that'll that'll take them to the next level of hell uh, or at least away from this terrible place and there's a, a brief moment where one of the poo lint workers looks uh at them and they are tempted to take them with them uh out of this place, but then decide not to. And that creature, the Poolint worker, is uh, horrendously torn apart then by the big bollock pooping tumor creature. That denial of kindness is, uh, by this point, d- deeply perturbing. <laughs> yep. It um, is, and it, and, it, and it resists um, standard story structure. In any other movie, this would be the moment where oh, he's going to take this guy with him, and they're going to they're going to be friends, and there's going to be sacrifice, and they're going to help each other. No, no, he's just dead within three seconds. The movie refuses, makes you think that might happen, and then takes it away from you, uh, you know, instantly. Um, which I thought was, I I thought it was very exciting actually, because for a moment I was like, oh, are they doing a more traditional movie than I thought I might be in for? Um, no, <laughs> they're not doing no. that. <laughs> well, I mean, if you had any kind of expectation of of, of uh, a hero arc, then that is quickly um, you're quickly disabused of that by the following scenes in which the uh, would be hero uh, locates uh, a massive pile of suitcases, and it's at this point that I noticed, perhaps for the first time, or really understood that the hero is also carrying a suitcase. Um, which they open to reveal a large amount of dynamite in a timer. And it's, it seemed clear to me, although other synopses of this film suggest other interpretations of this, that the big pile of suitcases implies that this place has been visited by many, many preceding assassins, all with their own suitcases, which then did not blow up, clearly, because this place still exists. And the character places the suitcase, primes the detonator, and then is almost immediately attacked and dragged off uh, by a, a horrendous creature um, to be uh, torn apart and dissected. Um, whilst the bomb itself ticks down to zero, but then never quite hit zero. <laughs> In uh, just a, a perverse denial of both your expectations of the film and also the intent of that character. It was at that point that I knew we were really off piste. <laughs> yeah. If everything else up until this point had not told me that, then I, I was certain at this point that we were in for something quite different. Yes, it almost has a kind of um, funny games uh, kind of moment to it. You know, the moment with the remote control in, in funny games, where it's just waggling its finger at you and sort of going, "Nope, you don't, you don't get, you don't get anything that easily here. In fact, you don't get anything at all." <laughs> um, and that's a, that's a very frightening place for a movie to put you in because they almost never do it. Um, and not, they also almost never do it at this point in a movie, you know, sort of, this is kind of end of act one. Um, and, but it gives you a, a, a sort of 
an end to this character or an end to this moment in the movie that couldn't feel more hopeless and empty. You know, for me, that interpretation you mentioned is absolutely correct. And, you know, these are just, you know, beings who are constantly sending, you know, these bomb wielding, you know, men or women or whatever they are into this, into this place and the bombs never go off. And this has been going on for decades, years, millennia. And it's just this kind of pointless exercise in something um, that's never going to succeed. What's Um, so dismaying about it is that the bomb wielder themselves doesn't recognize this, having seen the huge pile of unexploded bombs. There's just something doubly futile about it, that they don't even change their course of action, having known that millions, if not infinite numbers, have preceded them and failed. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's, it's, it's that thing about doing the same thing that has failed before and expecting a different result. Yes. Um, but yes. It doesn't end well for them, though, because uh, they are captured and tied to a gurney and then uh, horribly dissected in, a, in scenes that mix uh, live-action silhouettes with what appear to be live-action, uh, which has had frames dropped from it in order to make it look more like stop-motion animation, um, and then sort of dirtied up with this grindhouse grain effect. Did you find that an effective technique? It Just about. I think the movie needed, you know, some kind of connective tissue, as it were. Um, I think these were probably the least successful. I mean, they're still, they're just, I really like the stop frame animation. And it's just, you know, normal normal film with frames removed is just a little bit less convincing. They do go quite a long way to mediate that, I think, by quite how long this scene goes on for oh, yeah. um, and how much stuff they're getting out of this dude because it <laughs> it really it really is something <laughs> to behold. Uh, how did you feel about that? Yeah, I, I felt the same way as you. I, I didn't find it as quite as uh, affecting as the um, stop motion, even though, you know, that should feel more real since they were using actual human actors to, to do this stuff, but it, it didn't quite work for me. I have to say, I think it would have been more successful without the grindhouse grain effect uh over the um over the film which i've seen in just too many low budget bad horror films that try to excuse the fact that they're bad by saying oh but we're harking back to the 70s um by putting uh you know just uh, a shitty um dirt covered filter over everything that happens um so so it reminded me of that which is perhaps not the sort of inference i was i was meant to take from it um but uh, the stuff that they were getting out of the character again, like I'm just, just you just want to sort of project meaning onto it. Like they're pulling out coins and pearls and jewelry, and then books, just kind of absolutely covered in gore from the center of this assassin creature. What what are we meant to take away from uh, the contents of this person? <laughs> Are we meant to be thinking, oh, but what if so this uh, character is motivated by money or something like that? I, I don't know. I don't know that it needs to be even that cerebral. I think it'd be a shame even if you engaged your kind of analytical senses in a way. <laughs> yeah. At no point was I sort of wondering what they were looking for. It's just like, I think what I was hoping was that it would stop. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, it's 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 so it goes on for so long that scene, and you know, you just the, the sort of mounting horror is that guy is 
pushing his arms deeper and deeper into this uh, guy's chest, like he's like Mary Poppins' duffel bag, you know, pulling out <laughs> oh, ever more, <laughs> ever more unholy objects. Um, did you did you find at this point had your sympathy for that character been exhausted? Did you want them to survive? Did you expect them to survive? Yeah, I, I wanted him to survive. Yeah, I, I, they give him an eye. You know, you can see his horrible tortured eye. Um, you know, I, I did feel sympathy for him, but I think I wanted them to kill him, and so his suffering could be over. Um, you know, that's that's the kind of debased place this movie puts you in. Ultimately, <laughs> it's just please, just end it. You know, kill the poor guy. Um, and yeah, I think again, if they'd done a thing where they were like pulling, you know, a bit of gold out of his stomach or whatever. Um, uh, then that would, you know, you could say, ooh, capitalism or, you know, what do we truly made of and all that sort of stuff. But because it goes on for so long and because there's just big piles of stuff on the floor while while they're looking for this other thing, which we'll get to, um, as you say, it resists a easy explanation and just uh, immerses you in the horror of the moment of it, yeah. And the, the, the horrific thing that they are searching for appears to be... Uh, I don't know, some sort of vertebra baby. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's uh, That has a little arc of its own, but um, maybe it's it's important before we talk about what happens to that uh, tragic creature. In terms of like the structure or the lack of, of the film, what happens next seems to be quite key because it uh, it's quite baffling. Um, the surgeon drills... Uh, it's just horrendously into the brain of the hero and plugs them in i said hero sorry into the character um and plugs uh their brain into a television set and we begin to see something projected on that television set and we seem to merge into that reality um it's not clear where we are temporally because i thought uh, at first that what we were watching on that tv screen as it becomes you know, as it fills the the frame of the actual movie itself, is what preceded the assassin's descent into this realm. Um, we see this long-nailed man called in the cast notes as the last man. He seems to be some sort of priest who's presiding over a world that is just every bit as gross and fucked as the one that the assassin then descends into, but with more kind of uh, explicitly fascist and religious overtones. Um, and it's clear that this man is in some way dispatching these assassins to the hellscape that we've previously seen. But it's, but then it cuts back to, and I think back and forth between uh, the voyage of either another assassin or the same assassin that we've seen in some past moment um, and what is happening to the vertebra baby. So it's not clear where we are <laughs> temporally, whether that matters um, do you have any kind of interpretation over whether this there is a, there is a kind of narrative logic here if it requires one? I mean, I think I think what the movie sort of prods you to do is try and look for one. Um, I was I was sort of thinking, you know, along the same lines as you, but actually the the movie doesn't doesn't finish the circle. Um, it. it, it it does everything but finish the circle. It takes it off in all these weird directions, but then it doesn't bring it back on itself, at least not in the way you expect. So, you know, I found this this scene with the 
it's Alex Cox, actually, the, the movie maker, um, the sort of punk filmmaker playing The Last Man with his long fingernails. Um, and yeah, it's just, it really puts you uh, um, in a state of discomfort, I think. Um, and I was kind of, yeah, pretty, pretty upset. <laughs> <laughs> pretty upset by what was going on there and i and and i think the lack of connection is is what is what frightened me the most is that it doesn't it doesn't give you a rope to to pull yourself mm. back to where you were um it sends you off in another direction unexpectedly yeah one of the, one of the directions that we we go in is is seeing perhaps a second assassin's journey um they appear to be slightly differently dressed from the assassin that we've seen before so uh, I assume it's a different assassin. Very similar in every other regard, though, and they go through a similar sequence of hellscapes, uh, like a shattered city with these giant viruses descending upon it. Oh, I really hated those things. They were so scary. <laughs> the way they yes. kind of zapped, like a little bug zapper, just pointlessly at the uh, at the people below. Really unnerving that. Just, you know, these things sort of descend from the heavens, and you don't know what they're going to do. <laughs> and then they do that. It's, yeah... I say that this 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 journey, however, did have the one moment in the film where I I, I I genuinely found it funny without it being necessarily troubling in the way that the other scenes of violence are funny, uh, which is that this uh, this new assassin, having been through as many horrors as as the other one by this point, drives driving across this um, nuclear blasted landscape. And bothers to stop at a crossroads yep. <laughs> before slowly moving on again. It's just like, yeah, you'd have you. I probably wouldn't observe uh, the road laws in no. that environment. <laughs> you're good, mate. Yeah, you're all right. Um, yeah, um, I'd love the, um, the that kind of tank battle sequence that occurs around here as well. It's like mm. really quite like visceral and, and 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 thrilling you know it just sort of comes out of nowhere that this um you know this sort of world war Two, you know tank combat thing uh that he's kind of moving through and I, I just love how um uh strangely weighted the movie is you know it's so asymmetrical in in how um it pitches itself um that like your your um you're being taken through a world which you know like you know your dante's version of hell it's is structured by its very nature and it has a sense of you know proceeding through the various rings um to get to the center um whereas here they confound your sense of uh, physical space and also temporal space but also of kind of um you know plot logic space um uh in terms of how they weight things and there's this conflict that kind of doesn't seem to be connected to anything we've seen before or is possibly mm. absolutely connected and I, and I just I love that yeah well it feels almost like it's the, the the spirit of war itself just playing out in perpetuity in this landscape like there doesn't you in, in this place there aren't any uh, humanoid perpetrators it is just these kind of tanks destroying each other endlessly whilst giant mushroom clouds plume all over the place, um, you do see uh, uh, the shadows of the dead burnt onto walls, which I thought was particularly chilling. Um, but you don't see any actual people um, there. There's just something about it which seems to suggest that war itself is some sort of eternal landscape. Um, eventually, the 
this new character finds themselves uh, at the brink of a square pit, a bit like a step well or a quarry, um, and they drive uh, this vehicle that they found down and around it, which actually was the point which gave me the most anxiety in the film because the the car has to navigate quite tight turns. Yeah, <laughs> uh, which for some reason is was scarier uh, than anything else. Uh, but I think I think I'm right in saying that's basically as you see that character descent further into darkness. That's the last we see of them, and it, the story fully then returns to the plight of the the baby and uh, what unfolds from there. So that once the baby's been extracted, uh, it's given to a nurse who then gives it to this floating plague doctor thing with massive hands. Um, that thing was very scary. Mm, yes, <laughs> deeply unsettling. Again, unsettling is to know what role they have within this world, if there is any sort of hierarchy whatsoever. Certainly, certain things about the environment seem to obey them. Um, but it's it's... It's, it'd be hard to say that they are in any way in charge, even though other creatures seem to serve them. Yes, they did seem to have a kind of um, sort of dignified, or not dignified, but like, you know, uh, diplomatic immunity <laughs> kind of vibe <laughs> yeah. to them, didn't they? Like, this person exists as a, I say person again, it's not quite what he was, but, you know, this being exists slightly outside of the rules of 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 the place we're in, you know, and is to be treated with, you know, respect. Um which is unnerving to see because no one's treated anyone with any respect so mm. far in this uh, in this world. Uh, he seems to be served by some sort of uh, gibbering tumor goblin. Um, yep, yep, tumor goblin. I mean, it's it's funny because his the the beings walk through this world is the most of the rest of the movie. Um, it takes a long time to kind of go, and then we we cut mm. into to, to yes, the tumor goblins' various um, activities. Um, yeah, I was very disoriented by this because it seems to be building. I mean, it's just this this new, it's just a new set of characters with new unknown objectives, and it takes a long time to reveal exactly what they're even attempting to do or how those things would achieve it. Um, so, it, I mean, you're just left disoriented uh, for a long period of time, having had the previous focuses of your your attention as the audience killed and then just um duplicated and then disappeared <laughs> yeah yeah our, um, our protagonist has just abandoned us now and we won't be seeing him again which is very strange um, but there are moments of beauty weirdly in this in this sequence there's a sort of glittering cave where there's minotaurs um uh, which seems quite beautiful uh there's a, a sort of f- fungal biodome <laughs> Uh, which is very colourful. That moment but... is that. <laughs> we should unpick that moment a little bit because he's got these little pets, sort of, and they're like the the only things in the movie that you might describe as cute. Um, these little, very colourful. Like, it's hard to describe what they are. They look like kind of donut men or something, mm, and yeah. they're they're snorting worms up their noses like <laughs> cocaine. <laughs> and there's like a mummy one and a baby one. And then he unleashes his horrible spider monster into their pen, who eats them, uh, eats one of them. Uh, and then I think there's a table of them playing like cards. <laughs> and they just sort of look over at this spider taking away one of the young. Um, yeah, really horrible. <laughs> yeah. But also the only one the few moments of colour. <laughs> yeah, in, in it's, really, it's really striking. It's like, yeah. I also, I mean, one of my least favorite bits is those two um monkey things digging in the shit 
um, who oh, are yeah. fighting each other. It's just extraordinary in a movie full of extraordinary animation. Like this sequence is absolutely brutal. These mm. these two figures um, trying to kill each other with spades, and then the horrible tumor goblin comes along and electrocutes them, you know, viciously to stop them from fighting. Um, you know, making them vomit and shit, and then they they start off again on the on the shit shoveling. Um, clearly only to start fighting, you know, again, any moment now. Uh, really, really horrible, but really amazing uh, sequence, I thought. Yeah. There's, again, just a sense of futility to uh, to it, that they're always going to be fighting. There's just, because it ends with one of them just poking the other in the eye, and then it cuts away. It's just like, well, <laughs> no, this is going to go. Very good secondary motion animation on uh, that monkey's swinging dick, though, I have to say. It was very... Uh, <laughs> really gave you a sense of uh, momentum Uh. yeah it's funny because there's a lot of um like you know uh, sexual organs in in this movie uh you know that are parts of monsters but like (laughs) like that monster you described earlier which is like a bollock monster uh in the sort of um you know the torture scene in the early on in the movies it's also like a boob monster and a vagina monster and a penis monster and an anus monster kind of all happening in one horrible monster. (laughs) And I thought that was kind of, you know, I've never seen quite so many horrible, twisted sexual organs, uh, you know, sort of punched into one ball of flesh. Really, really horrible. (laughs) More distressing than that, actually, was was a scene uh, with the plague doctor where the plague doctor's just floating along carrying uh this baby through some sort of underworld and from behind a pillar this sort of half melted deserted baby starts kind of crawling after it calling it mama um but is ultimately sort of pinned in place by its tendril like umbilical cords uh I found in a movie of many distressing scenes I found that to be the most distressing I think yep uh uh, pretty oh. horrendous, uh, which is which is saying something because in a subsequent scene, the um, the the sort of uh, vertebra baby is crushed into goop. <laughs> yeah, uh, and yet the other thing was somehow worse. I don't know quite why. Uh, <laughs> well, also uh, that yeah. the the you know the long sequence of the plague doctor moving through the world and the the baby's crying, uh, you know, goes throughout, and it's one of the few or the most notable unaffected. Um, you know, vocal performances, as it were, in the movie. It's just a baby crying. Mm. Um, it sounds like a human baby crying. Um, and it cries throughout the entire sequence of him delivering uh, the baby to the the tumor goblin. Who I think uh, in the Wikipedia page, which is, you know, not necessarily accurate, it's called The Alchemist, um, which, you know, sort of makes sense as to what's, what's about to happen in, in a funny kind of way. Yes, I, it's... It's a very perplexing sequence of events because uh, alchemy is obviously uh, unknowable to us. And so the the sort of mechanism by which the effect is produced is, isn't something we can glean in advance. So it just seems like a large number of non sequiturs being piled on top of each other with this, this, his goblin assistant sort of cleaning up this clock room. Then he looks through this telescope at a, at a naked lady and then there's a nuclear explosion don't really know what to, how to interpret that but eventually this builds to um the baby being crushed then this liquid being poured into a brick then that brick being fired and cooled then ground into glitter which is then tossed into a furnace which uh seemingly causes 
uh, a big bang, like the celestial explosion, which restarts the entire universe. Um, during that sequence, we see the planets forming. Uh, there's a, a, a UFO flies by. Yep. Um, obelisks sort of like fly out of the screen to spank into planets in a, in a way which <laughs> I assume directly recalls 2001. Um, and there's a sort of beyond the infinite moment, but it's kind of like oily and organic. Uh, there's a baby in, in the bubbles, which is uh, a famous scene also from 2001. And then suddenly you get cityscapes and there's, you know, the evolution of man. Um, but as soon as civilization arrives, it almost instantly descends into discontent and anarchy. There are suitcase bombs and then war and death. Um, and if, and then we end up in the same sort of hellish landscape that the film began in um, with a black hole with obelisks spinning out from it. Um, it seems to be suggesting that evolution always ends the same way each time in this sort of squalor, war and hell, which is yeah, not, not an uplifting moment, <laughs> really. No, the movie, as it ends, really kind of dumps you on the curb. <laughs> uh, it's, um, well, you know, I read a couple of reviews and some people felt a little bit dissatisfied by the ending because it's so, as you say, it's completely impossible to um, really understand what's happening at all, even on a kind of symbolic or poetic level. It just doesn't really, you know, make sense in any of the ways that we're used to, apart from the idea, as you say, that suggesting that, like, vice and failure is just so fundamental um to existence that this is just the this is just the you know the absolute truth of everything about this world is is this sense of failure and destruction and death and murder and 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 violence and yeah it's it's a conclusion that movies tend not to get to you know um because it's too brutal to to really conceive of so yeah it was it's a it's a hard one the the movie re- you know, refuses to to give you a, a, a shimmer of of hope or of of light, um, and I mean, for me, that's that's kind of thrilling. I think um, if you ever heard that album that came out a couple of years ago by the band Low, who would you know the Low had made their names doing kind of you know quiet core, um, you know, lovely harmonies, kind of slightly goffy American indie music, and then they came out with this album in the wake of Donald Trump called Double Negative, where they smothered their sound in distortion and electronic effects and and all sorts of you know uh, unusual sound effects and made a uh, made a masterpiece um about hopelessness i think that album is um and it doesn't give you the the ray of light at the end it just it just r- reveals a way of feeling about something um and lots of my favorite things i think um sort of regardless of a, some of the bleakest things are some of my most favorite things because I, I don't know why it is. I, you know, I'm not a particularly um, bleak person. I think there's something admirable, I guess, about staring so f- fully into the abyss and not giving yourself a, a ladder out of it. Not only does it not offer you a ray of light, but there is a certain jointiness in the very final moments of this film, which I think is more of a sort of fuck you (laughs) to anybody expecting some sort of relief. Uh, A a new bomb timer appears to, or maybe just a clock, uh, clicks towards zero, and then when it hits zero, 
uh, a cuckoo pops out. And then the credits proceed with sort of jaunty gamelan music over yep. them. <laughs> <laughs> that's an unusual choice, that. And that's uh, that, That's it. That's the whole lot. I mean, it's uh, I'm probably never going to watch it again, but I'm no. glad that I did endure it. Um, I think it does resist interpretation uh, for good reason. I think it is more of... Uh, more about the experience and the the feeling and the sensation of watching it than it is about any kind of specific meaning. I think you would reduce it if you tried to apply metaphor to it uh, in a crude way. Yeah, and I think it it's sort of um, you know just as a piece of it. You know, it's almost a shame that it's such a brutally difficult watch because as a piece of you know tactile. Um, you know, artistic um, technique um, and creativity, it's its just off the charts. There's just never been anything like it. You know, a, a vision of hell made out of clay, bits of, you know, in someone's garage, basically. Just the feat of it is is just extraordinary. Um, I can't really think of anything that compares to it, you know, in, in this sort of world. Mm. You know, a lot of these um, you know, things that are, you know, something like Coraline, you know, which is a, a Coraline, which is a good, a good movie and, and a good use of stop frame animation and all that kind of stuff. But it's, those are made by massive teams of people, you know, and, and huge studios with lots of money behind them. And and this just being the, the, the crazy work of one, you know, one guy is just, uh, it really, it, it's additive to it. You know, I know we're all very deaf of the author these days, but to me, the fact that this was a, knowing going into this that this was one man's work essentially and one man's vision of him delving into his own worst fears and just sort of you know automatic writing an act of automatic writing um made it all the more fascinating you know there's a meta level to it which is you know i don't know anything about the guy really um but the fact that it has a single author and that he has you know worked in the background of things and this is his sort of first foray into into something he's entirely altered himself is 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 really fascinating to me yeah. i can't imagine there'll be a second one <laughs> I, I hope he lives a long life but um i, I suspect another 30 <laughs> years would be quite ambitious um but yes it is it is the work of one man principally i think there are other animators credited on it but i i assume they they took quite a, a lesser role and perhaps helped finish it really rather than contributed to the the vision in a kind of really key way yes i think um, i think he, i think he said as much yeah um it certainly feels like like no no you know no, there would never be a pixar writer's room which would ever conceive anything like this <laughs> you know it, it's it's though you know the pixar movies are often heralded or at least they were in the 90s for being you know that similar sort of thing we were talking to talking about at the beginning whereas when you're working with animation it's so hard to do and so painstaking that you can't afford to fuck it up which is why all those early pixar movies had such superb scripts um uh, kind of completely airtight and this doesn't have an airtight anything it's full of holes <laughs> um and uh, you know that's a that's a wonderful thing i think would you recommend it then yeah yeah i'd recommend it i think it's like it's like a, a theme park ride but made of made of shit and blood <laughs> it's it's like <laughs> you know it's it's a trip I, I think that's why I'd recommend it. It's one of those things where it's a horrible ordeal, um, mm. but it's also made out of plasticine. So, you know, it's it's you're safe in that, at least. Um, 
and uh, I think it, it makes it a really unique um, experience if you can if you can stomach it. I would struggle to see this in a cinema, I think. Mm. Um, uh, but I would probably just about manage it and come outside with a real feeling of of horror and despair. Um, but the kind of horror and despair where you're like, right, let's go and let's go and have a lager. You know, it's kind of <laughs> it's, it's it's a sort of safe place for those things. You know, for now it is uh, trapped on sh- Shudder. Uh, but you can get a free uh, temporary subscription to Shudder, I which think you, which you will then forget. You'll then forget about and get charged at least once. Yes, basically I, a law of the universe that you get charged by uh, Shudder um, every time you try and open up a cheeky free trial with a spoofed email address. Yes, well, I mean that's exactly what happened to me. I have a year subscription to it because I I, I can't remember what film I I think it might have been Train to Busan maybe that I got it for. Um, it's a great movie. Um, there's a there. I do. Do you have any other recommendations of things that are on Shutter that people with a, a week of free time should look out for? Uh, yes, actually, there's one called White Girl, which is a good uh, short film on there, which, which I can recommend. Which is directed by Nadia Latif. I also like their. Um, they've got like a horror host on there um, who does like um, you know horror like in the American style, you know um, Elvira type way called I can't remember his name, but it's he's a very funny kind of. American guy who, by all accounts, has been a sort of character on TV over there for several decades, and he does really good introductions to uh, grindhouse movies and stuff like that. So I, I like those as well. I'm not a huge horror movie fan in general, um, so I, <laughs> so my my year long subscription to Shudder has, has not been particularly <laughs> fruitful. But um, there are some really good things on there if you haven't seen the the Babadook or uh, A Field in England um, or Ginger Snaps. All, all classics. Um, got, a girl walks home at night alone. Uh, yeah. or, no, sorry, a girl walks home alone at night. Rather, yeah, is very good. They've got um, Wreck, the original Spanish uh, oh, Wreck, on there, which is yeah. pretty horrible. That f- absolutely fucked me up. Yes, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> deeply, deeply scary movie. Yeah, well, they've got the um, ABCs of death. Oh, I think one thing I'd really recommend actually is I think they've got it on here. I'm just going to type it in there. Uh, I think they have the VHS. Um, mm, anthology movies um, and the most recent one of those um, which was called I think it's VHS 94 um, yes that one um, has got one absolutely incredible um, sequence in it I think it's the middle one which is done by an Indi- Indonesian um, director um, which is similar to this actually a horrifying voyage into hell although it only lasts you know, 15 minutes rather than <laughs> an hour and 20 on that. So I, def- I definitely recommend that. I mean, I like um, I like those horror anthology things because they're, you know, they're often quite bad, but pretty, um, you know, they last 15 minutes. So who cares? You, you get to see a lady puke acid over another dude's face and that's fine. <laughs> that's, what you're, that's what you're there for. That's what that's cinema was made for. That is what so, cinema was made for. Uh, Heathers is also on the service. Oh, great movie. Um is that a horror film? No. I don't remember it being a horror film. I no. thought it was like a coming-of-age school drama. Yeah, with a kind of black comedy element, but it's definitely not a, a horror movie. Inexplicable, but welcome. Another one it's got on there, just one more recommendation for Shudder, is um, Possum, which is a oh, really, yeah. hor- really horrible horror movie directed and written by uh, Matthew Holness, uh, Garth, Garth Marenghi himself. Oh, really? Um, I didn't know that. Yes, which is uh, you know a sort of chamber horror movie with just just um, two or three characters, hmm. um, and yeah, it's it's great, really good. I'm not sure. Um, I'm not sure 
Mad God is really a horror film. I mean, it's obviously horrible, but I, I don't think it relies on really the same tropes as uh, Shudder seems to normally deal in, with some of the exceptions that we've just listed, really. No, it's it's a sort of... It's hard to classify, isn't it? It's it's hard to classify mm. what it actually is. It, 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 it's sort of... You know, you want to call it a sort of art, art movie, an art house movie, but it, it it's far more visceral than than that sort of suggests. You know, um, it's it's not like um, you know Matthew Barney's Cremaster, you know, cycle where it's like there's you know it's twelve hours long and there's lots of tedious bits you can't be bothered with. You know, it's it's got mm. a whole a whole uh, other thing going on there. Yeah, it's almost documentary in a weird way, uh, in that it's like a, the indulgence to one man's psychotic break <laughs> over a long period of time. Yes, uh, yes, it is. Uh, it's like here is a documentary about the, the horrible things I see in my head <laughs> just before yeah. I fall asleep. <laughs> and now uh, we too shall fall asleep, I suspect. Yep. Uh, if you'd like to tweet us, you can do that at Creighton Crowbar. All of these recordings are uploaded as videos to YouTube where you can find other nonsense by us. The address for that is youtube.com slash crowbar. Thanks as always to our backers on Patreon. You can back us too at patreon.com slash crowbar, or you can simply join our lovely Discord community, the link for which is on our website, crowbar.com. That's it. I've been Marsh Davis. I've been Jamie Britton. Thanks, Thanks for, for listening, listening everybody. everybody. <laughs>